Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, communications specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Gina Valentine, assistant professor of art. In their conversation, Professor Valentine discusses her art practice as well as her effort to digitize her project Black Lunch Table, a collaboration with New York-based artist Heather Hart. The IAH awarded its inaugural Arts and Social Justice Grant to hold a Black Lunch Table event in spring 2017. So if you could just talk a little bit about your work in general as, a, as an artist. So I work on a project, a collaborative project called the Black Lunch Table, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Me and my collaborator, we both have our individual studio practices. Um, Heather Hart makes primarily large-scale participatory sculptural work, um, and my work a, is, is small and either uses found objects or paper that I've made, um, ink that I've made, data or text that I've sourced directly from other media. A lot of it is fairly political, especially lately, given the, con- the current political climate and also the fact that I am trying to understand what my role is as a mother of a black son. And what drew you to using text and paper and, and the ink? And hmm. Was there something that influenced that? Yeah, I mean, so I'm interested in found. <laughs> so I'm interested in. I had been interested in working with found objects, but I started thinking about text as found and other popular media as found, or something that's available to everyone. So how to source from that and use images and words that are rec- immediately recognizable to other people. And I'm also very interested in craft techniques. So paper okay. making comes onto that. Yeah, and. I guess being someone that was interested in working with found materials, specifically for me interested in working with um, objects that come with their own history or with their own use value, um, it kind of made sense that if I wasn't going to be working with something that I found, I should be making that thing anew and being able to control what what goes into the object-related histories that it might have. So, for example, the Iron Gall ink that I make is the bane of a lot of archivists and universities. I went over to ask the folks in Wilson Library if they knew anything about Iron Gall ink, and they couldn't believe that I wanted to work with it because generally it degrades the paper that it's written on, which is why I'm interested in it. (laughs) (laughs) I was interested in what it had been used for and also that I was working with it in a way that was counter to um, a lot of the research around it. What had it been used for? Manuscripts uh, for writing Greek compositions, like I guess Mozart. Oh, okay. Pieces but they didn't it. realize it would eat the paper. Yeah. <laughs> so there, the other thing about Aaron Galling is that there's you know hundreds of recipes for it, and okay. some of the recipes are more stable than the others. The ones that are stable or have less iron in them, so they're less likely oh, okay. to become corrosive. The ones that are like the folk recipes tend to have an excess of iron and not enough gum arabic which is a stabilizing element so so does the iron just oxidize and then the rust so iron gall ink is an indelible ink and it's said to have bite meaning that rather than just sitting on top of the paper it gets down into the fibers of the paper so when it does degrade the paper it's not just degrading the top layer but it degrades all of the fiber underneath it but when it does oxidize it produces sulfuric acid which is actually what eats the paper have you consulted chemists on, on that? Or? 
Not yet. When I was doing this research, I was interested in making in writing text that was literally too toxic for the substrate on which it was written. Yeah. And so I was reading about strip mining, and there's these different techniques, I guess, concoctions of chemicals and bacteria that get poured into mines that will eat everything that is iron, leaving behind the ores that people oh. want to extract. Yeah. So I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I could get some of this? <laughs> could you talk a little bit about Black Lunch Table and your efforts to digitize it as well. Yeah, so the Black Lunch Table, um, as I mentioned before, is a collaborative project. My collaborator and I started this back in 2005 at a residency in Maine called Skowhegan. Back then, it was kind of just a social experiment to see what would happen if we segregated the lunchroom because generally in high school lunchrooms or university lunchrooms, there is always a black table or an Asian table or, you know, any other social minority tends to congregate around a table in the lunchroom, but this hadn't happened at this place, so we did it. We're really interested in the conversation that happened at the table, and so that was kind of what has formed into this larger project that we're doing called the Black Lunch Table. So looking at how giving a set place and a set amount of time to discuss a set amount of issues specific to a very specific community, um, Mm -hmm. Artists of the African Diaspora produces conversations that I think that we have more, we have constantly, but in a more casual way. I guess it, it authenticates those conversations as part of a, a larger art historical record. Um, and so last year, Heather and I collaborated with another professor in the art department, Hong An Trung, um, who's also an IEH fellow, and uh, organized two black lunch table round tables in Durham and Chapel Hill that were bringing together community members of all races, um, professional backgrounds, ages, to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement. So we invited people, professors from Duke and UNC, um, high school art teachers, a couple pastors, someone from NPR, to sit down and talk about you know issues to do with institutional racism. And so from that, we've developed another series of roundtables, which is Black Lives Matter-inspired discussion that's open to all members of the community and invested in, talk- in talking about these issues, but also in their lives outside of those sessions. Um, and you're recording these conversations. Yeah, and so we're recording all of these <laughs> conversations. Everything is recorded. Um, so our, our events generally seat five people at a table. When we do the seating, we try to diversify the seating so that we can cross-pollinate the conversations. We realize that activists tend to discuss these issues differently than professors in the African and African American Studies Department and differently than, you know, soccer moms. So there's five people at a table, generally five tables at each event, and we record all of the conversations. And so we've been working um, through our IEH and Digital Innovation Lab Fellowship. We've been working with the Digital Innovation Lab to digitize and make available all of these audio records. So we have a team of amazing grad students that we're working with that are working on transcriptions and uh, editing the audio and assigning metadata tags. Um, and at some point, this will become an amazing searchable online audio archive. It will be housed indefinitely at the Carolina Digital Repository, um, and some segments of it will be available through the Southern Oral History Project, which is yeah. really cool. So do you have any upcoming events we do. And where are they? Yeah, so next spring is going to be really busy. 
We are collaborating with Hong An again. Um, Hong An and her collaborator, Hong No, who's a Chicago-based artist, to do a series of performances and roundtable discussions as part of the AIH's um, Art and Social Justice Initiative. Right. Um, so we'll have events from the end of February through the beginning of April out on the quad. Um, we're making a giant performance structure. Um, Hung An and Hung's project involves staging an immigration hearing or an immigration interrogation. Um, so the seating that we're making or the stage that we're making um, will resemble a courtroom, which will be assembled out of modular seating, and the modular seating for the courtroom will be able to transform into a series of picnic tables. So we'll oh, have okay. yeah. Nice. So we'll have conversations about the performance immediately following the performance, and then we're also hosting a series of black lunch table. One series will be uh, post performance discussions. One of them will be for artists of the African diaspora. Um, two of them will be open call, Black Lives Matter related discussions for everybody on campus. And finally, there will be one for black student associations on campus, too. So we've also been invited to uh, Boston University to um, do a series of black lunch tables and Wikipedia edit-a-thons there. And we're hoping, we're hoping to partner with some other area uh, universities and organizations to make a, a larger series of events. And uh, the Rhode Island School of Design also sometime in the spring. And we'll be at... Guilford College out in Greensboro. Yeah, yeah. It just feels like there's an, an incredible thirst for these kinds of conversations. Yeah. yeah, through this process of having these talks and these roundtables, what's the most revelatory, or is there anything surprising that that's happened through this process? And the roundtables themselves, I think we're always surprised that everyone gets along, regardless of like their backgrounds or their viewpoints. I think. You know, on the one hand, maybe it has something to do with being recorded. Okay, there's more civility. <laughs> yeah, there's more civility. <laughs> um, but also, I think people are just genuinely interested in hearing what other people have to say. So some really amazing conversations have come out of that. The other thing that has been challenging is trying to conceptualize and facilitate the construction of this archive. I mean, I think in our minds we had some idea of how it would work but as visual artists and not as library scientists or programmers or metadata analysts, we had no idea what the possibilities would be. Um, right. And then also how to take all of those possibilities and figure out what it is we actually need for the project. And so working with um, the folks over at the DIL and then also here with Brian Horn have been really amazing because it's allowed us to do a lot of brainstorming that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. I mean, I think we had some ideas of what po was possible, but no real ideas about what was already being done or what really fit with our project in the best way. So yeah. big ups to those guys. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. I hope that was okay. That was great. <laughs> yeah. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.